Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 at Crosstown. I'm Emily Trenum, your host. And if you've driven around Memphis, old Memphis neighborhoods, you've probably seen some small houses, maybe some clusters of shotgun shotgun houses, um, particularly in some of the older neighborhoods. Those were built for a reason. Well, first of all, the demand for smaller houses was people just had smaller houses back in the day. In some neighborhoods, those were built to accommodate uh, people who worked at a nearby plant, such as in New Chicago, and in other neighborhoods where you'll find them. Some are in Midtown, some are in Cooper Young, some in Orange Mountain. In other neighborhoods, you'll see them. They just accommodated a wide variety of people who worked and raised families. So those, a lot of those houses still exist. A lot of them don't, but they're on small lots. And the, the small lots are scattered throughout the city. And rebuilding on those has some challenges. There's not a demand for, you know, those houses didn't accommodate the whirlpool tub. <laughs> so there's not a demand for those really small houses anymore. There's regulatory and practical considerations. So to dive into this topic of what we're calling skinny lots. I've invited Josh Whitehead, who's the zoning administrator for the Division of Planning and Development. And I heard Josh, uh, I participated in kind of a talk workshop he did recently on the subject and it had lots of really interesting visuals, but I thought, you know, this would be, this would still translate really well to to radio and to audio. So I decided to invite Josh on and to dive into the subject. So welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. So I tried to sketch that out sort of really big picture, but I will tell you, as we're talking, if there's anything that I say, I try to simplify this anything, but I don't always capture the nuances of you know zoning and planning. So I hope you will not hesitate to say, you know, you didn't get it quite right, Emily. Um, so I hope that introduction sort of sketched out very big picture um, what we're talking about today. So, but I want to sort of get into some definitions. Um, so, what are skinny lots for the purposes that we're talking about today? So, a skinny lot is essentially any lot that is skinnier than it ought to be. And when I say ought to be, uh, I'm I meaning ought to be under the zoning regulations. So most of our zoning districts today in 2021 require a certain minimum width for lots. Generally, it's 45 to 50 
feet, depending on which zoning district you're in. So a skinny lot is basically anything less than 45 feet. Um, and in some cases, much, much less than 20, uh, 45 feet. As you've mentioned, shotguns uh, were generally built on a 25 foot lot. So where I, I mentioned, I mentioned a couple neighborhoods where these are found, but where are they? The I know you have some maps and, and actually we may post them in the show notes to the podcast, but where are some of, where are some of these clustered? There's a, uh, there's a lot of clusters, but the biggest concentrations uh, are in South Memphis. If you're familiar where uh, Coletta's restaurant is uh, at South Parkway and I-55, that is a huge uh, conglomeration of skinny lots. I think there's probably about 10,000 of them right around that area. Wow. That's then, a lot. Yes. Now, many of those are 12 and a half foot lots. Um, so 12, and a half, 12 and a half feet wide? <laughs> yes. Uh, so why in the world, in a city that was unaccustomed to row houses, would developers build uh, or uh, plat 12 and a half foot lots, one asks. Uh, I don't think they were ever intended to be row homes, although that would be the only uh, use for such a skinny lot. And in, in fact, you can go to Baltimore, you know, the, the, the holy grail of row houses, and most of them are well above 12 and a half feet. I believe that those lots were created to accommodate different types of uh, end users. So if you are a, um, a, a, a individual who could, you know, you were really looking for a starter home, you know, your first house, you were in the very beginning of your career, perhaps, or you were just uh, pretty poor, you would probably buy two of those lots. A 25-foot width lot would accommodate a shotgun. So you'd buy two. They'd sit together. Uh, let's say you were maybe a little wealthier or more advanced in your career. You would buy three or four and build instead of a shotgun, maybe a, a bungalow or a cottage. Okay. So, um, and There's a few other clusters. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Go on. My clusters. Uh, uh, Orange Mound is is an, is another one. Now there's a subdivision called Orange Mound, but then there's a lot of, let's just say, additions to that subdivision. All of those additions and the original Orange Mound subdivision probably again ten thousand uh, lots, and then um, there's a few scattered ones, but probably the biggest single skinny lot subdivision is called Mount Arlington. And Mount Arlington constitutes a pretty significant portion of what we now call the Cooper Young neighborhood. So those are probably the three biggest clusters. So did um, and you may not know the answer to this, although you may because you've kind of, you have studied this. How how many of those do you think had individual structures on them? Do you have any idea? You're speaking of the really really skinny ones. Yeah, I can find no the skinniest extant shotgun that I can find is actually uh, on either Alaska or a street that is parallel to Alaska. We're talking about the Klondike, Klondike uh, neighborhood. Yeah. 
the Olympic Park subdivision. And it that house looks to be maybe 15 feet wide. So I don't believe any 12 and a half foot lot was ever developed. Um, now, I have an Excel worksheet that I could send you that I've tried to estimate how many uh, lots were built upon because when these lots are built upon, when, when someone buys two 12 and a half foot lots in 1902, generally speaking, uh, that stays within the same family and they're not split up. But what is the real tragedy uh, is to not just have a little 25 foot lot hanging out in the middle of the neighborhood that's probably not very attractive to, to many buyers, but to have a 12 and a half foot skinny sliver which is absolutely useless, which uh, going back to one of your previous podcasts really does contribute to blight. Well, so, um, so what's the, I mean, what's the big deal with these in terms of, and in terms of redeveloping them? I mean, a 12 and a half foot lot, if that stands by itself, um, I can see that that wouldn't be useful as much more than a side yard or, you know, a community garden or some kind of neighborhood use. But generally speaking, um, what's the, why is it so hard to develop on these? And if I'm at, if that's not the right question, um, you know, let me know. Well, it, it was harder in the past than it is now. And I only say harder because now there is a, and not just in Memphis, but seemingly throughout the country, there are more people, more people in the um, baby boomer generation, more people in uh, the millennial generation and more people in everybody, everyone in between willing and uh, interested in and capable of the urban lifestyle. And I say urban lifestyle as opposed to the suburban lifestyle. Now, you could argue there's still a majority, perhaps, in many of those age brackets that would prefer to be suburban. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to give a, a number to these percentages, but regardless, there are more people today moving into cities than I think we've seen in, in, in many, many decades, if not generations. So there's more demand for one thing. Yes. So now you have more demand for these skinny lots than you used to. So uh, they're not as quote unquote develop, uh, difficult to develop as they used to be just because you now have a demand. Um, so then how do you develop these skinny lots in an era in which people like their single occupancy vehicle, which are generally 10 feet or so wide and 20 feet or so long. <laughs> right. And that that's where you, where the rubber hits the road. I'm not sure if any um, neighborhood necessarily objects to uh skinny lots being utilized, particularly while where they have always been skinny. And we're going to get to dormant skinny lots in a moment. Uh, but it's just the garage. Sometimes it's the garage placement that really fouls up 
the 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 not only the design of the individual house, but how it fits in the character of a neighborhood, a neighborhood that probably was not designed for single occupancy vehicles, uh, or if they were, those garages are way are detached and way in the back of the lot, so they don't constitute this, you know, uh, this overwhelming percentage of the front facade of the house. So let me ask a couple of other questions before we get to, I do want to talk about those sort of, you know, the design considerations, which are very interesting and have, you know, generated some discussion in the community in recent years. Um, Well, first of all, this is a very basic question. Is there, are all those lots, are they, you know, I guess the term is grandfathered in. I mean, even though you couldn't build on the, I mean, maybe not the 12 and a half foot, but even though now you can, you know, lots have to be a certain minimum size. I think you said 40 feet wide, but if there's one that's smaller, um, can you can build a house on that as long as you follow the zoning and subdivision requirements, right? That's correct. We identified this issue very early on, I I believe, maybe even with the first iteration of the zoning ordinance, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary uh, this year. Yay. Uh, (laughs) So we identified this a long time ago because the, the very first zoning code really wanted to promote wider single family lots. So um, we had, because we wanted to promote the wider lots, we almost from the very outset had to address these non-conforming lots and how to deal with them. Uh, I found a commercial appeal article from 55. We redid the zoning code in 1955. And apparently in 55, we made it much more difficult to do things with this, these 25 foot lots. So uh, I think in 56, we went back to the 1921 approach, huh. which is what we still have. So the, the zoning code says you, you can't do anything with the 12 and a half foot lot because, because that's ridiculous. Uh, but if you have a 25 foot lot or uh, enough 12 and a half foot lots that in you know proportion make so many 25 foot increments, you can redevelop those 25 foot lots, you know, provided there's a certain side yard setback, basically that meets the fire code, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that is what has, that's uh, one of the most controversial aspects is the dormant. Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about that. I meant to ask you about that at the beginning. So you've got skinny lots, which we've defined basically lots that are less than 40 feet wide, um, but they're all different kinds of widths, as you've said. So um, so what are dormant skinny lots? So we mentioned uh, in the context of the 12 and a half foot lots that some buyers would buy maybe three to create a 37 and a half foot lot that would be nice for a cottage or four. You know, now, now that person has 50 feet, maybe that's a good bungalow width. Well, the same held true for 25 foot lots. Uh, let's go to Mount Arlington subdivision in Cooper Young. Cooper Young, although it was platted in the 1890s, it really didn't take off. It was kind of far off from town uh, that you know long ago, and people didn't really have cars. 
So there was, of course, the streetcar, the East End dummy line that, that went down the, uh, the, the the current route of Mata bus number two. Um, that could get you downtown. And then we also had the what we call, you know, these days, heavy rail that had a stop there at Cooper and Southern. And you took take that to the uh, Union Station downtown. So there was two ways to commute, but it was still difficult that far out. So with the exception of maybe Blythe, that street that's right off of Cooper Young, you know, the first street to the east of Cooper off Young, there's a, a, a nice collection of shotguns there where you see the original 25-foot lots being utilized. But outside of Blythe, you you, you really don't see that. And that that's because Mount Arlington took a couple decades to really uh, catch on fire, if you will. And so it wasn't until the 1920s where Mount Arlington filled in. And by 1920s, uh, that had become an a middle class versus a working class, I guess an upper middle class, maybe neighborhood. So bungalows were the popular housing type for that income group. And the 25 and, and 12, 25 foot lot wasn't big enough. So they would sometimes build uh, buy these buyers two or three or maybe even four lots, put them together and build a bungalow. So this is where perhaps the, the most controversial aspect of this subject comes in because someone built builds a beautiful bungalow, let's say on four 25-foot lots. Uh, fast forward, now we have this phenomenon that we're currently in where people are uh, moving back to the city. And so you, now you have this pressure where maybe a, a house isn't structurally unsound, but it's sitting on four dormant lots so, right, the, the market forces come into play where you could have a perfectly good and sound bungalow being purchased for the sole reason of demolishing it and building four new houses. Um, so what the end result of that controversy, at least in the last couple of years, has been is uh, that neighborhood will petition to become a landmarks district. And a, if you're in a landmarks district and you're a contributing structure, if you're a structure and uh, that 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 exhibits the architecture of the purpose of the district, so in uh, Cooper Young, the era of significance is 1890 to 1930. Chances are, if your house was built during that time period, you're considered contributing to the historic district, and therefore you cannot. Uh, tear your house down unless you can show uh, by by a, a structural engineer that it's unsound and it, and it needs to be torn down. So the so the the term dormant refers to the fact that the individual lots were not built on. I'm just as a point of clarification, those four lots are dormant because there weren't four. I'm simplifying because there weren't four houses built on them. Right, they were grouped together and bought by someone a long, long time ago okay, and, and then developed as a group. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, and we're talking about skinny lots, small um, lots in the Midtown and other older neighborhoods, and how 
the history of them and then how the challenges of developing them in a sort of a, a, a compatible and popular way. I guess we'll, we haven't gotten to that yet, but I guess we will. And I'm talking to Josh Whitehead, who's the zoning administrator of the Division of Planning and Development of Memphis and Shelby County. That's a mouthful. So, so Josh, um, one of my questions I wanted to ask you, and I think we've touched on this, you know, these lots have been around forever and, but all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about them and I, you've sort of alluded to demand, but also um, there's been some, you know, the Memphis 3.0 plan is, is emphasizing filling in, elaborate on why, uh, some of the reasons why we have why we're talking about this now. From my perspective as the zoning administrator, the Memphis 3.0 plan uh, comes into play on a daily basis, not with existing neighborhoods per se, but when a uh, person seeks to rezone his or her property. Okay. So that's when we consult Memphis 3.0. Um, so if, if you want to rezone a property that's in the middle of a big swath of single family to multifamily, uh, you know, zoning is not exactly rocket science. Most people, zoning professionals or not would say, in, you know, rezoning something in the middle of something else to something intense, be it multifamily, be it a gas station, that just doesn't that doesn't pass the smell test. Now, what if that the subject property was not in the middle of this sea of single family, but maybe uh, off to the edge, abutting a commercial property? Well, now, now we're getting into nuanced, right? Maybe that seems okay to me, uh, but maybe not okay to the next person. So that's where Memphis 3.0 comes into play, because some uh, commercial areas particularly are considered anchors and some of those anchors we want to accelerate uh, some other anchors we want to nurture. And so in yes, 3.0 would probably almost universally say, do not rezone a property in the middle of a single family neighborhood to multifamily. Well, I guess, uh, I guess maybe on the edge, you know, depending on the neighborhood, yes or no. I guess I was think- thinking, and maybe this is, not completely relevant. The whole philosophy, building up, not out, um, prioritizes filling in holes. Um, and that's, that's uh, um, I think of this as kind of filling in um, some of the holes, although it sounds like in your world, the bigger issue is what goes, what goes in and what it looks like. Right. No, uh, let's talk about filling in the holes because I think there's probably uh, probably some degree of universality of the general point that yes, Memphis is gigantic uh, in square miles, right, uh, and has a relatively small population. To make this municipality work better, we need more people in the existing footprint. I, I think again. There's probably some degree of universality on that point that, yes, we need to build up and not out. And um, speaking of, I think th- that same group of people would also 
say that suburban sprawl is damaging for a number of reasons, uh, damaging to the environment, damaging to the, uh, you know, the, the, the social fabric of the metropolis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we fill in those holes? So I think there's probably two schools of thought. Uh, the one says, hey, commercial, the future for commercial real estate doesn't look so bright. Uh, the future for office real estate uh, maybe looks even less bright. We have these big corridors. Uh, arguably, we have even before COVID and before uh, the recession of a decade ago, I think we could all admit we have way too much commercial square footage for our population. So one school of thought is, aha, we know where to fill in the holes. Let's put, let's concentrate our build up, not out, concentrate our new uh, dwelling units along our commercial corridors, which are increasingly going to become uh, less and less uh, viable as commercial corridors. That's one school of thought. Let's concentrate it all there. Then the other school of thought says, and maybe this is where we get to the dormant skinny lots is, okay, well, that's great for these tall multifamily towers. You know, I'm making Rosecrest and uh, the Kimbrough Towers and the Gilmore. Well, and all the new ones that are going in now, the Citizen. Yes, all the big ones that are going up now. But uh, that doesn't really build wealth for the little guy. What helps build wealth for the little guy are the little duplexes and the triplexes and the quadplexes. And this goes to missing middle. How can we introduce missing middle? Maybe. Right. Sh- 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 Uh-oh. Okay. Okay. So I, I tried not to get the bell. Right so what is, so this is an important point. What is, uh, what's the concept of missing middle? Uh, to me, missing middle says, Hey, when you go to these cities, these very well-functioning urban environments, whether we're talking about Chicago or Atlanta, even uh, New York, these great cities that we love to go to and we love to go to restaurants, we love to get in the neighborhood. We don't want to go to the touristy part of town. What you'll see, and and to some degree Memphis, as you're strolling around the leafy um, neighborhoods, the leafy mostly single family neighborhoods, you'll see perhaps at an intersection of two uh, you know, minor streets, a quadplex, a four unit building or an eightplex or a duplex. Um, that is what uh, we would call missing middle. And it's missing because it really hadn't been built in a long, long, long time. Um, and I, I went to income producing because oftentimes especially with the duplex, you could live in one half and rent the other half out. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't take Mr. Moneybags to build a fourplex, right? Uh, it, it does take Mr. Moneybags to build a 200plex, right? But a fourplex, many people could buy and get passive income. Mailbox money, who doesn't like that? So, you know, this is a very interesting subject. And I... um I hope you'll come back and we, I would like to do a program just on this. I think, I think the subject is fascinating. The middle being, you know, single family homes, multifamily, 
and everything in between is just not and has not for quite a while been encouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, well, admittedly, Emily, we built. Think about what we were building in the fifties and sixties and seventies. We did actually. There was a uh, a resurgence in missing middle, and it was so ugly. It was. I mean, no offense. I'm sure I'm, there are people are listening that maybe own or live in some of these buildings, but they really are not compatible with their surroundings. I agree with you. Those those weird little townhouses you yes. see. Yes, some of which are getting torn down now. But, but I want to go back to. I want to go back. Um, not get onto that too much, although it's so interesting. Let's go back to skinny lots because you personally have been, you know, involved through, um, you know, through some tweaks to the unified development code to try to get this right in a way that these lots can be developed, but they're, um, the community is also, they're compatible with the neighborhood and, you know, you've described a couple of scenarios and one of which is, um, the, is, is, um, you know, tearing down a house and then putting multiple properties, people call them tall skinnies sometimes. Um, and a lot of times they've got front facing garages and those are, they don't, they don't blend in with the neighborhood. And so there's been some of that, not a lot. There's been a lot of pushback. So how are you trying to finesse that in a way that encourages the redevelopment, but at the same time is um, is compatible with? Because this is important as neighborhoods like Orange Mountain get. I mean, this is these are important issues. Well, uh, so one thing that we noticed a few years ago, let's just get down to a specific detail, and that is garage placement. Uh, We noticed a few years ago that there was a a section of the code that was kind of um, off on its own and not attached to the language speaking to uh, skinny lots and what we call contextual infill. So we have infill housing. That's, uh, before you ring the bell, I'm going to explain. <laughs> no, you have an empty lot or a dormant lot. You just have new housing, mostly uh, single family, but it could be multifamily, I guess, but new housing in an existing neighborhood. That's basically infill. Yep. And so uh, we, what the, the UDC, the zoning code says, okay, let's make infill contextual. Okay. What does that mean? Just compatible with the street that it's on because a lot of these houses that are surrounding it are going to be there probably as long as the new house that's being built. Uh, I'm prejudiced to old construction. So arguably maybe the existing houses will be there longer than the new house that's being built. Uh, So the contextual infill standards is a section of the zoning code that was for a long time a little disconnected from the garage placement. Okay. And so what we found was our building department um, and our, us, the, all the all the people were missing the garage placement because it was dislocated from uh, the code. So we fixed that. We there's a thing about cross referencing that's that's great as a practitioner. If you see a you, if you see things cross-referenced, you'll know not to forget about those other sections. 
So we've been racing to fix the code, but I think who is perhaps one step up ahead of us are these neighborhoods who say contextual infill or not, we need to be a landmarks district. Right. So, you know, by the time we get this all worked out, um, you know, there may not be a whole lot of usefulness in it because, uh, again, you can't have a lot of this contextual infill if you don't tear down the existing house. And, you know, that's almost impossible in a, in a landmark setting. So, but there are still empty lots and Orange Mound is not a landmark district yet. So what does the regulation now say with regard to garage placement? It says unless garages are predominant, and I think we went ahead and defined because we had a problem with that. 50% or more, unless 50% of the or more of the houses on that block from side street to side street have garages, then you cannot have a garage uh, unless it's in the back of, unless basically it's hidden, right? It, it's in the back of the lot. And this is not, a, I mean, it's a new regulation, but it kind of carries into breathes into regulations a practice that we did for many 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 decades which was uh garages were always hidden right uh, and now they ate up you know my garage in midtown and the driveway to get to it and the the little turnaround space to get in and out of it eat up almost my entire backyard i don't like to mow y- mow grass i'm perfectly fine with that but some people with kids perhaps they want a backyard, so that now we're getting into maybe a conflict between uh, you know eating up a backyard to accommodate the design and the compatibility that we want, but now are we um, you know lessening the universe of people interested in buying this thing? Well, you know, um, you raise an interesting question that I wanted to ask you about it, and so many years ago the when I first started working with community development corporations, I went into a neighborhood where, you know, one of these CDCs was building some single family homes and they were sort of traditional, what we would call suburban style. Um, and, you know, brick with garage front facing garages. And, and, you know, this is, I was new to the field, you know, I was shocked, you know, this did not at all blend in with the, you know, the historic, even though it's a very low income neighborhood, a lot of blight didn't fit in. And so I, you know, just asked um, about that. And, you know, the director said, well, I mean, we're trying to bring families back into this neighborhood who can live in Bartlett or Cordova. And this is what the kind of housing they want. And basically, don't be, they didn't say, don't be such a snob. I felt like a snob, but, um, but there, but how do you going forward? I mean, Cooper Young is one thing, but going forward, how are you going to manage that? Cause I'm in some of these neighborhoods, people are going to say, we need new housing. And if it's brick housing with front facing garages and people want to move in and become homeowners, hallelujah. And there's going to be other people, um, that are going to say, no, this is a historic neighborhood. And then we need to have the, um, I feel it's going to be more divided in some of these areas that aren't going to become landmarks districts necessarily. And how, I'm sure you've thought about this. How do you see that managing that? That's a big question, I guess, but I was curious about it. 
No, that's a, a great question. And going back, so uh, our contextual infill standards, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a misnomer. The, 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 I'm talking about the UDC again. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it, it doesn't necessarily require infill. Uh, you know, when one thinks of infill, maybe one thinks of, oh, the empty lot uh, there at the corner that's always been empty and someone's going to build on it. Infill is really anything built that uh, the, the definition is that abuts a pre-1950 neighborhood on two sides. Okay. Um, so that probably covers almost every instance that maybe in your mind. Uh, and so what there's two significant portions of the contextual infill standards. What? Well, three. Uh, the, the first being garage placement. We've talked about that. The second being front porches. Again, if front porches are predominant on the street um, and in the neighborhood, then you have to add front porches. And uh, that section of the, the, the contextual infill standards was not so dislocated like the garage placement. So we've been pretty good starting with the adoption of the UDC in 2010 at getting that right. And you'll probably notice uh, a lot of the newer developments that you'll see um, in, in all the neighborhoods, if, if front porches were the predominant type, and they usually were predominant before 1950 because people didn't have air conditioning. And so uh, almost a, a high percentage of our houses before 1950 have front porches. Right. Uh, and then the third significant part of the contextual infill standards is um, setback. Right. Uh, if you're if the setback, the predominant setback is between uh, 25 and 35 feet on a block, you have to build within that. You can't push yours way back um, and you can't push yours way forward, notwithstanding what the, the, the UDC says on setbacks. You have to be within that range. So I think the UDC uh, in 2010, the, the, the drafters of the UDC heard you and others loud and clear on that because uh, the issue was if we're just going to get more um, non-resilient housing in neighborhoods that we're trying to make more resilient, then we're really not achieving much. And we, we might be achieving something in the short run, but not in the long run. So it sounds like the contextual infill standards um, can accommodate both in a neighborhood like Orange, I'm just using Orange Mountain as an example, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of opportunity to rebuild. It can accommodate both. It can accommodate development that blends in with the neighborhood, but also accommodates things that people want in a housing product. Yes. And it's a work in progress. The you know the zoning code is certainly amendable. So when things don't work out or if, if the regulators are, are missing things, um, we always try to avail that an opportunity to, to fix that. So it, okay. you know, it's a work in progress. Okay. Well, I, I will admit that I'm kind of a nerd about these kind of things, but this conversation has been fascinating to me. <laughs> And hope some of our listeners agree, the ones that have stuck with us this long. 
So, Josh, we've talked a lot about what's happening in Memphis, some of your efforts, these uh, these standards, trying to balance the desires of the community with the market. But this is probably not a, a problem that's unique to Memphis. So what have you seen in other places that you think is interesting um, and are any of those things that you think, you know, realistically could be brought to Memphis and Shelby County? Um, you know, we're probably talking about the policy change here, but um, but share some examples of things you think are interesting that, that people are doing other places. Well, how we address these dormant skinny lots, uh, I think is in, in, in some ways, a probably a good direction for Memphis, uh, and and I'm not suggesting that what uh, Minneapolis and Nashville are doing necessarily provide us a good example, but maybe the extreme of what cities can do. Uh, Minneapolis is currently dismantling its exclusively single-family zoning districts to allow two and I believe three family structures throughout the city, uh, including the formerly single family districts. Now, admittedly, if you look at a map of Minneapolis, which I did do this morning, uh, surprisingly, a, a low percentage of their property throughout the, the, the municipality is zoned single family. So getting rid of single family uh, you know, it, it, it got, it made national, perhaps international news, but most of the city was already zoned for two and three families. So it wasn't a huge deal for them. Um, but what Nashville did perhaps is maybe more instructive. Nashville has a lot of duplex zoning. Memphis got rid of a lot of bears. Uh, Memphis, for many decades, I think up until the 1955 zoning code, allowed duplexes to be built in many of our single family zoning districts. Um, and that's why you see so many duplexes from maybe the, the, the 40s and the 30s and the 20s kind of strewn throughout some of our neighborhoods. We put an end to that in the 50s. Um, and I guess many other cities did too. But what Nashville did was they un undid that. Uh, they said, not only are we going to try to encourage duplexes, but duplexes no longer have to touch. So what does that mean? What's, that a, du what's a duplex it doesn't touch? <laughs> well, it basically means in, in those zoning, in that zoning district, the duplex zoning district, which is not all throughout Nashville and Davidson County, right? It's mostly what we would call our midtown area. What has happened is you have a front house and a back house, and usually they are uh, they look identical, uh, or they're side by side. And so, why did Nashville do that? Well, Nashville, to a much larger degree than Memphis, is really experiencing an influx of population. And so, I think what this was a response to was let's get a little bit of density by right, because we are being inundated by all these thousands of rezoning requests. Um, let's, and, and maybe we don't want 
so many monolithic, gigantic 200-unit apartment complexes. Maybe we do want to get some of this density in a single family format, and that's where this duplex definition change occurred. They didn't have to rezone any property. They just changed their definition of duplex. And so now you have uh, basically two lot condominiums, right? Because they are single family, they're, they're owner occupied mostly. And so you have two uh, detached condominiums sitting next to each other or back to front. So it just, I don't want to ring my bell again, but I just wanted to clarify something. So when you say by right, that means that someone can just automatically do it without you know, requesting special dispensation from one of the planning, like you can put it, you can put a du- you can put a duplex or one of, or in this case, non-touching, you can just do this automatically. You follow the other rules. You don't need to get special permission, right? Right. That's there's what, no, that's what that, by that, right that, mean. There's no discretionary decision that you need to, um, um, no discretionary matter that you need to put before your city. Well, in both of these seems like get to that missing middle we talked about. Um, not so much the two condominiums on one lot, but the ability to um, to build duplexes and the like. So just going back to the Minneapolis example, I know what you're saying that it sounds like they didn't have that many single family districts. I mean, I love this idea, but it sounds like would be wildly unpopular here. Um, Don't you think? I I do, but I find it helpful to know what is going on elsewhere. So then you can discuss it in context here, right? So what we're talking about is dormant skinny lots which maybe on the grand scheme of ways cities are trying to accommodate extra density, um, in many ways, maybe this is some of the most, uh, inoc- this may be one of the more innocuous ways of addressing that, uh, uh, you know, compared to let's upzone our corridors uh, or let's accommodate missing middle at, at intersections. Uh, this to me would be maybe one step down um, but you know, density has to go. If if we want stuff, if we want stuff in Midtown and stuff in South Memphis and stuff in North Memphis, and we want to encourage, uh, you know, wealth creation through property ownership, um, we need people. You know, we need households. And so, it the question is how? What are these units going to look like? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I just, I think of, um, you know, even some of the low income neighborhoods have gone through the process of trying to get, you know, down zoned because they wanted, I mean, people have this, um, you know, for better or worse, have this idea that the single family unit, that's probably because in Memphis, that's, that's all we've known. (laughs) Um, You know, that's the gold standard. And if you have a neighborhood that has other things in it, that, that that's a reflect a reflection on the neighborhood status or affluence. And um, but I I would love to see more. Um, I think this is a, a great idea. I'm just I think 
and I and I admire you know you for yeah for seeing what's going on in other places because it can inform what happens locally. So the Nashville situation, I mean, you you have heard a lot, sort of circling back to our previous conversation about. Um, you know, non-contextual infill that we've had. Uh, people do reference Nashville because it's been such a hot property market that you have had um, a, in a lot of midtowny kinds of neighborhoods. You have had infill that gets new units in, but is doesn't blend in at all. And I, there's a lot of that in Nashville, and I think that people worry about that here. Um, but, and have they made any efforts in Nashville when they've allowed duplexes, non-touching duplexes, have they, have they addressed the issue that these complaints that are pretty common there to, um, with the development that just doesn't blend in? I'm rambling, but I think you know what I'm asking. Uh, yeah, I think. You know, I guess if you are a Nashville council person, of which there are 40. Uh, <laughs> I know. Isn't that, I know that would make your life really easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the idea there was when they merged in 62, they wanted to ensure that, um, you know, all the county commissioners at the time and all the, you know, they had to accommodate the existing elected officials when they, and so I think that's, most likely how they got up to 40. But because there are so many, uh, you really do have a grassroots approach to the, you know, the, each council member really represents, you know, a small geographic area. Uh, and so I just was reading some interviews of various council members, some council members in some neighborhoods saw the densification as a great way to uh, you know, combat blight. But on the other end of the spectrum, you had a, a lot of other neighborhoods who said, you know, we have a really, really good housing stock, um, you know, say no to everything. And then in others, they said, we know this is coming and it's driving us crazy to have to fight a zoning battle every two weeks. Why don't we, we know it's coming to our neighborhood. Why don't we Put it over there. Nashville Next is their Memphis 3.0. Uh, and that's a, Nashville Next in part articulates a lot of this stuff. OK, we uh, petitioned the government. So Nashville Next said that the development, the density goes over there. So when there's a rezoning request, you know, at this corner, we know it's it's Mr. Councilman. Right. You're, you're going to be against it. Right. Um, so it's just a matter of. Of the and there's only 35 districts, by the way. There's five at large seats, so it just depends on which of the 35 council districts. Uh, I, I bet there's for every 35, there's a slightly different shade of uh, reaction to densification. That sounds complicated. <laughs> yes, it does. So, Josh, do you feel like this, You circling back to Memphis, it sounds like a lot of, um, to the extent there's been, un, you know, uncompatible development, it a lot, sounds like a lot of it was created because parts of the zoning code just weren't connected. 
Um, you know, the people were enforced, you know, people were following the garage rules, but not necessarily looking at this other section. Obviously, I'm simplifying. Do you feel like you filled those, um, you have filled those holes? Uh, we do, uh, but maybe this is the sad fact. We have a culture in this city, and I don't, I don't care if we're talking about um, getting your building permit. I don't care if we're talking about, uh, you know, replacing your muffler. Uh, I don't care if we're talking about, um, you know, drinking and drugging. We do not like we do not like people telling us what to do. And unfortunately, so much of the work in this city is unpermitted. Yep. And so we can only regulate what people ask us to permit. And of course, you know, the assessor is going to use the permits that you got on his reassessment, right? So we have a lot of incentives for you to be bad and not get your permits. And so what we find a lot is we're dinging people without a permit and that's one thing, but now the, what they've built is totally out of whack with the zoning ordinance. And so we go to environmental court and environmental court is very reluctant to make someone tear something down. Yep. So I remember this from when I was, to this, when I, was I hope that you do right. But <laughs> yeah, I remember this from when I was on land use control board, the people frequently, there wasn't a lot of infill development happening in the, um, older neighborhoods at the time, but but it, people would come all the time with, you know, fences they had put up or um, giant signs they had erected at great expense that did not. And they're like, "Oh, I'm so, I'm sorry, I didn't know." I mean, the problem is, you know, maybe the first time we believe you, but the second and third and fourth time we see you say that same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, an another thing that happens is that people agree to follow the, you know, get all the permissions, agree to follow them, and then just don't. And there's not adequate resources to go back in and check to make sure that people followed all the rules. So, okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> it's, as I said earlier, it's just a it's a fast, I think it's a fascinating, it's, it's a, it kind of in the weeds, but I think it's a fascinating discussion touching on, you know, architecture, neighborhood character, you know, construction, real estate market trends. Um, you know, and it's a great problem to have. It's a great problem to have. You know, 20 I, years ago, we were sad because no one wanted to even touch Midtown or South Memphis or, you know, oh, Orange Mound. I mean, I agree. It's a good problem to have. It just needs to be managed. And that's where you and your team come in. So so I've been talking to Josh Whitehead, who's the zoning administrator at the uh, Division of Planning and Development for Memphis and Shelby County. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. 
You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.